0: <laughs> Thank you. My name is Clancy, and I'm an alcoholic. I'm really taken a little aback by that introduction, because, you know, anytime, it's always been my experience, when I'm sitting in the audience, and they introduce the guy and say, you're really in for a treat. I "It's hard to make that noise, too say, oh, really? Impress me, dummy. So, so I, uh, please don't wait to be impressed. I'm very pleased to be here. I'm glad that uh, my friend Conway asked me it's a uh, pleasure to come here, especially to be with a number of doctors. Some of you I know, and some of you I don't know. But I really am kind of, um, have a little medical history this year that I haven't had before. Because I'm getting a little older, I've been taking iron, a lot of iron tablets, Over the past year, and uh, venturing into fields of medicine that I hadn't before, about a month ago, I tried a Viagra. uh, And I had no idea that if you're taking iron, you're not supposed to take Viagra. Now, every four hours, I face north. I'm glad to be here. I really was kind of touching last night. I've known Hal for many years, and and he comes out and speaks at my birthday every year. Just spoke my 40th birthday in California. But I got off the plane at midnight last night. I was tired. I had I had to work in Los Angeles yesterday morning, where I work, and I do some science and papers, do some things, and and our chairman of our board was there, and I had to run go go like hell to the airport, jump on the plane about 1:30 to go to Chicago to come here, and I got in midnight. And I knew they said they'd have somebody to meet me, but I knew they wouldn't know who I was, and I'd be cold and tired. And, I'd, and I came down to the luggage area. I'd never be luggage, but I came down to the luggage area. And there, there came old Doctor Marley across there. He'd come all the way up there from here, down there from here, to make sure the driver would identify me, give me a warm handshake, and jump in the car. And on the way back, he gave me a lecture on gratitude. (Laughter) me pretty sour, I'll tell you.
1: <laughs>
0: but I certainly enjoyed hearing him talk, and enjoyed being here tonight, and uh, to discuss alcohol. Usually, you know, this is not a usually I talk at AA, and I give AA talks, and this is really not that way. I'm Kind of sharing a little bit about the technical aspects of recovery in the non-medical ways I see it. The uh, as most of us know, you know, they have records of alcohol it used to. They thought it was 5,000 years old. Now they've discovered 7,000 years in some pottery in Africa. And all these years people have been working with I guess everywhere people drinking alcohol, there's been, a, there's been examples, at least whether in written records, of people who react differently to it, who react badly to it, who have difficulties, who don't seem to have any way to control themselves. It's kind of interesting here in Georgia. Georgia, you know, is one of the few colonies founded by thieves and alcoholics, right? They sent them all from England to get here, and you could really see the residue today. <laughs> I don't mean Conway; I mean you know some <laughs> some of the others. But uh, and there's never been any effective treatment, as we know. I have an interesting picture home. I don't know if any of you have ever seen it. It shows it shows a room kind of like this, and there's a bunch of it looks like caskets standing up, but they're boxes. And, and then there's a hole here, and there's a person standing in the box. And it's taken from back here, it's a picture from back here of this room full of boxes. And it says, uh, it's a French picture, Dr. Le Gallien addressing a group of French alcoholics, 1874. And they're all in their box. <laughs> but that's fun. But anyway, all these, over the years, things happen. And I, uh, I know, as you know, that uh, I never really considered myself an alcoholic, because my problems were not really confined to alcohol, and over the years this has come about, and I really never paid much attention to the various treatments on alcoholism until I got sober. And I, I went to AA off and on, but AA obviously was an ineffective treatment. I went to AA year after year. The worst years of my life came after I came went to AA because I started to go to jail with remarkable frequency overnight. And I was hospitalized and put restraints and all sorts of things. But I went to AA, but it became clear to me my problem really wasn't like them. And then when I got sober this time, through a series of uh, odd things happening. I began to then, and little by little, my first experience with the treatment of alcoholism was when I was first sober, about a month. I was living in the backseat of an abandoned car, <laughs> but it's the AA Club parking lot, so there's a certain spiritual overflow. <laughs> and they came to the AA Club and they said, We have a new drug at UCLA. It's been just made available to us to treat alcoholics. We we're looking for 10 volunteers to go out to UCLA. You'll, get, you'll be kept, you'll be paid, you'll stay out there for a week or two, you'll be fed, you'll be uh, have a clean. Digs to sleep in, and my hand went up. You know, I, I volunteered in a m- minute, and they looked at me, and I looked rather unsavory. I didn't have any front teeth, not my fault, and uh, <laughs> I, I'd been victimized a lot, many times, thoughtlessly overserved, but they ref- they refused to take me. They refused to take me, and I. Uh, I was bitter. I was bitter about that. They took people who seemed to be doing better. And so I missed the famous UCLA, winter of 1958, early 59, treatment of alcoholism with a new drug called lysergic acid. <laughs> and most of them never got back. And you know, it, re- it was kind of funny, except it isn't very funny. Most of them didn't get back. And when, they, when their experiments failed, they just wrote that off. But the people who did, they had failed on didn't get back. And then I, I remember in 1961, I finally got a job after a series of being fired and uh, terrible jobs. I finally fell into the hands of a vicious sponsor who brooked very little rebellion. And I, uh, I got a job at a medical corporation. We were talking about it earlier. I started off as a writer, but I went to work every day, so I got to be advertising director of it. A firm called the Bircher Corporation. You older members may know what that is. They They make the hyphricator, the little electrosurgical unit that takes off skin cancers and things. And they made electrosurgical devices, and they made defibrillators, and they did a lot of things. And my job was to write some advertising for these people. And so I was heavily into reading medical journals in the Journal of the American Medical Association in New England and so on, and I saw my first ad, I didn't know why, I saw my first ad for... Alcoholics, I mean, how to treat alcohol. They had a, I vaguely remember, it said, Doctors, at last you can treat alcoholics without side effects, without problems. And I looked at that, and I remember thinking, Gosh, just my luck. All those years I screwed around. If I would have had a miracle drug like this, I wouldn't have to go to meetings. And uh, it even had a name indicating freedom, which was called Librium. <laughs> and I, I just slathered when I read it. And I was heartsick about that till after a year or two later the first, the first Librium veterans came back to AA. <laughs> uh, I haven't drank. I'm going to get my medallion. Could you tell me where the podium is? <laughs> And I felt disillusioned. In the mid 1950s, I was working in Channel 9 in Los Angeles in Hollywood as a promotion director. And they had a speaker come in one day that I, by this time, I was kind of a right wing fascist fanatic because I was working. And uh, this guy came in, and he was the director of services for Shick Shadell Hospital in Seattle. And Shick Hospital had just had a breakthrough they could now return alcoholics to social drinking. And they advertised it. They felt they had discovered it was an enzyme imbalance. And with the changing the enzymes and changing them back into balance, they could drink. And this guy had a wonderful presentation. He did it on our station. And I, I was involved with him, but I stood behind the camera. I just wanted to watch this boob do this. And he talked about how they could, enzymes. And then, on the table in front of him, he had a martini. <laughs> and at the end of his talk, he said, you know, there are certain people, certain programs, certain fanatics, if you will, who say that once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. But I'm a well, well-known alcoholic with many problems in my past. But I have, I'm the treatment director at Sheikh <laughs> chay And... Alcoholics, they say, cannot do this. And he drank the martini. And I didn't even want it. My tongue darted out.
1: <laughs>
0: you know, couldn't believe it. And I thought, how could this be? everything I believed on the toilet would turn out later that uh, apparently one of his, his enzymes hadn't kicked in one day. <laughs> and he was in a padded cell up in Shadell. <laughs> But uh, So they changed their policies to abstinence very begrudgingly. And they went all the way to having a seven-day treatment program. <laughs> uh, in, the, in the late 1960s, there was a doctor in Albuquerque. And I, I, I enjoy these things because I just like to read about them at the time. And he got a lot of ink in the national press because he had developed a way to help alcoholics. your your family or whoever would bring you to his office while you were drinking, he would photograph you, take movies of you drunk and slobbering. (laughs) Then the next time you felt like drinking, you'd go to his office, he'd run a reel, and you'd say, oh, I don't want to be like that. (laughs) I don't want to be like that. And he had all kinds of recoveries for a while. But it turned out a lot of people didn't have time to go to the show on the way to the bar, you know. (laughs) My all-time, one of my all-time favorite is in 1970 or 71 at the White Memorial Hospital outside of Los Angeles, run by the Seventh Day Adventists, and they got a full page in the Times and a carry run over to another page because they had developed a technique that was perfect. Now, they're deaf on drinking. These self-advocates are death on drinking. And so you'd think this would be absolutely against their wishes. But they took a ward and made a bar out of it. A real bar with a back bar and a bartender and everything. And they'd bring these guys first in their first morning in this hospital. <laughs> There'd be a bartender. You want a drink, pal? And they'd know this. Kid. What are they going to give me? It isn't going to be good. It's going to be some kind of hideous. He said, "What? what is it? Take your choice. Want some scotch? Yeah. yeah. Take. Really scotch. They really gave him drinks. Nothing in it. And they were, you know. Hey, you, you religious people know how to treat alcoholism, don't you? <laughs> and they were so good. They even had a little wire on the glasses so they... I guess so. They wouldn't steal the glasses and take back to their rooms. And these guys went day after day, happy days. <laughs> and one day they'd take a drink and then run the electric shock through that cord. <coughs> <laughs> uh, not so much ice next time, Fred. <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: Yeah. The next time, the next day they wouldn't give them any shock. Oh, well, that's more like and they'd give them a shot (laughs) and then from then on these guys were just their lives were hell they're just like fawns in a forest fire you
1: know (laughs) they're just terrible (laughs) and finally these guys would come in and say you want a drink no I don't believe I do
0: (laughs) and they had another cure and they had a God, I got a lot of published out of that. And later on, of course, some guy did a follow-up and discovered nearly all of them were drunk. Most of them hadn't got beyond the first bar that didn't have wires on their glasses.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: then most of us old folks remember the big grand report of the early 1970s, where it was announced for the first time all over the world: alcoholics can drink again. And there's a small type, except for those that can't. <laughs> but that, that was a big thing. A lot of people got tricked that one. And, of course, they had great results. And it wasn't until three or four years later, I think, a doctor in North Carolina finally got the list of people and did a follow-up. He discovered barely all of them were drunk. Some of them were dead. And I was talking to a guy that worked at the Rand Corporation that I knew after that, and I said, how did you do your follow-up? You say you had the success and you had, you're all drinking. He said, I, I can't believe it. We called them every month. And I thought to myself, "Whoa, what a breakthrough that is, you know. <laughs> the worst day of my drinking, I could have passed that test. You,
1: Yeah,
0: know, still okay.
1: <laughs>
0: and just one after another, three things. And, and today they're still doing aversion treatments, they're still doing all kinds of things, and can't understand why these boobs don't stay sober. And it's, a, it's kind of funny, a lot of these things, but people gave their lives believing they would work. And I, I look back and think, what, what, it's so simple now, why people, so simple a way to stay sober, what, what's so difficult about it? Why do, why do 95 or 97% of alcoholics still die drunk in America? Why is there just nothing but chaos? Why can't you get people to do these things? And I think it's so easy. I want to take people to say, come on! And yet, uh, it doesn't seem to work. It hasn't worked. Never. we got more sober people than anywhere in the history of the world, but it isn't anywhere doesn't scratched the surface, and you wonder why. I've given a lot of thought and talked to a lot of people over the years about this, and I think one of the things, in my opinion, that is the great problem, of course, is that there seems to be different types of alcoholics, and I'm sure the technical people could understand this and could make delineations and and uh, line up how they land. But in my unschooled way, I, of the people I have known over the years, there seem to be there are some people who drink a great deal and they drink a lot. They have every evidence of being an alcoholic, but something happens. Something happens to shock them, or something confronts them, and they all of a sudden say, hey, that's enough. I'm not going to do that anymore. And we all, at least I, have been exposed to that in my family. My mother's Uncle Leo was a bad alcoholic, but something bad happened in 1924, and he stopped drinking, and he never drank again. And people would say to me, why can't you be like Uncle Leo? He acted the way you did, too, but he, hasn't, he doesn't drink anymore. And I'd look at Uncle Leo. And I don't think he smiled after 1924. <laughs> and his wife was still grinding him about things he did in 1919. <laughs> yeah. But there are people who are able to stop. And we all know them. And, and they are able to stop. And then there are others, some more people who are much the same way, who cannot quite stop because they become physically addicted to alcohol. And they have to be withdrawn. And they have to go to hospitals and be taken off. And they're told, look what's happened to your life. Look what's going on with you. Don't do this anymore. And they take it to heart, and they stop drinking. That's, I think what, that's where the success figures, for example, hospitals such as Schick Shadel have. They take in people who are physically addicted. They actually withdraw them. They give them information and knowledge. And the people go out and don't drink anymore because they've got a success ratio. And then the third class of person, of course, is the one that's so baffling the people who have shocking things that should make them stop drinking, who are given, put in hospitals and withdrawn, and still eventually will always drink again. For no apparent reason. Just drink again. It's a matter of not caring, a matter of don't, no interest in the people around them, don't know what's going on. And this has been the bafflement of treatment of alcoholics for as long as for all time with any sense of decency, they would stop drinking. You'd think, if I could only get them involved involved in church work. I've I personally have been flown across the country a couple times, and many other people have to, to talk to big convocations of drunken clergymen, now sober, but who have had to go to AA to find a way to stay sober. They come in loving God and weeping in frustration. And AA teaches them how to stay sober, they go back and love God and stay sober. But they can't do it by their own therapy. And you think, well, if you could really get to the root of your problems, but that doesn't seem to have to make any difference. He's got a lot of psychiatrists in it, got a lot of psychologists and therapists. Most alcoholics agree that if you're whatever your profession is, that profession will not keep you sober. And it just absolutely makes people crazy. And that's why it's so odd to come to uh, come to the realization that there's no there's no apparent reason for this. How do you get people sober? Well, you can go to you go to Alcoholics Anonymous if you sunk that low, and uh, that's a dreary therapy if there ever was one. Well, I'll tell you, you're going to admit you're a terrible old drunkard, and God's going to make it you sane, and you're going to turn your life over to God. You're God. <coughs> Don't want it, eh? Going to write down all the rotten things you've secretly done? Read them to some (laughs) blabbermouth? Did you know I used to be married to a sheep outside of Butte, Montana? (laughs)
1: That's
0: not my story. I never went to Butte, Montana. (laughs) Then you're going to ask God to make you perfect, get rid of all your defects, so you can be like the people you've always hated and resented, little little thin blue lips. And... I don't believe I'd care to do that. That seems to be fun. I don't want to be like that. And you're going to make a list of people to make amends to. I'm the one hanging on the cross. and me course... <laughs> got to be down just long enough to say I'm sorry to the Roman soldiers. You know, What's nonsense? <laughs> then there's some, there's some more inventory in case there's any scabs that are just about healed. Keep looking. <laughs> yeah. And then meditation, that's a wonderful step for people like me, a, a crazed, depressed, self-obsessed idiot. Just, if, you, if you want to destroy me, you just put me in a dark room and tell me to meditate for a couple of minutes. <laughs> bring your pistol right along with you
1: <laughs>
0: and there's some, going to be some kind of a great great breakthrough as a result of this you're going to be allowed to drive across town perhaps in the middle of the night and explain this to somebody while he vomits on your shoes <laughs> AA is not the therapy of choice for most thinking people
1: <laughs>
0: and that's why it's so amazing after all these years that all these years it's the only thing that seems to have any track record. It's such a hard thing to understand. I uh, I think it's always a problem because the therapy of Alcoholics Anonymous... Now, Hal gave an excellent talk today, this afternoon. Those of you who are here remember on the attitude of gratitude, of gratitude and recovery, the gratitude that brings about humility, that brings about uh, anonymity, which brings about the spiritual foundation of all our work here. And... Uh, it's all very nice to have an attitude of gratitude. But when you don't have one, it doesn't make much sense. Yes, I'm glad you have an attitude of gratitude in AA, but I don't. I got problems. And it's like going to a banker's convention when you're bankrupt and hear them all talk about what to do about your $1,000 investment. I don't know. I don't care. I'm trying to find bus fare home. Who cares? And I look back at my life and I... When I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, the last day I drank, I would have bet my, if somebody would put a lie detector in my arm and said, are you an alcoholic? And based on 10 years of in and out of AA, I would have said, no, I am not. And that needle would not have quivered because my problem was not really alcohol. Since I was a little boy, I always kind of felt I had something wrong with me that made me feel inadequate sometimes, made me feel too sensitive and made me feel nobody really cared sometimes and feeling I don't fit in and these kind of feelings and alcohol was the one thing I found that overcame them at least temporarily and I found that on a ship in the Pacific Ocean I'd run away from home at the age of 15 early in the second world war and from Wisconsin ran away to sea and on a ship somebody gave me some whiskey and I threw it up and they gave me some more and I threw it up and I finally held one down I realized it made me feel like a grown-up, like a man. And then all these years later, I took my last drink. I suppose if someone would have interrogated me and said, why did you take that drink, based on the thousands of dollars I spent in psychoanalysis, I could trace the various imperfections that have grown in my life, the various lack of nurturings, the various pains, the various wrong steps taken by me and others. Or if I were in a psychological, in a Philosophical. One. I could talk about the philosophical deprivation I had felt. I could talk about any number of things. But I suppose if I would I wouldn't have ever given this answer, but I suppose the right answer was this. I'm drinking to feel like a man. Now, it's okay to drink to feel like a man when you're 15 on a ship in the Pacific, but when you're getting old and wrinkled and bald, you better start feeling like a man pretty soon. You don't have an infinite amount of time to wait. And I stood next to I, I had just, I had just been thrown out of a Skid Row mission. Two big guys said, "And stay out of here, you damn bum!" And I tried to explain to him, "I'm not a bum. Three years ago, I was on the faculty of the University of Texas. Ads that I helped write, the old L.C. ads for the Borden Company. We're running that very week in Life and Time and 30 Post. I've had my picture in the New York Times for one of my achievements." How many people do you know have had their picture in the New York Times for all of their achievements? But it's hard to explain these things in mid-air. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. And uh, I started that old mission, as a kind of a cold, drizzly rain, autumn day. Just a drizzle, I felt so bad. And I looked back down, I had a terrible feeling, and I... But I I didn't really identify. You never identify many feelings when you got them, you just feel bad. That's what I feel bad sometimes. I'm sure new people come to A and hear old fools like me and others talk, and we talk about our history as though we just knew it was going on. And then in 1952, I realized that a change of direction was necessary, and I moved. And you really don't, you just spent my adult life as a blind man running through the woods. But later day you could say, and then I, 1954, I felt the need for an elm tree. <laughs> yeah. uh, just boom, boom, buffeted around. But if, uh, if, if some old guy would come up to me that morning and said, you know, Slim, you're dying. You know, you're down to 125 pounds. You've lost your wife and children, you'll never see them again. You've lost your home, two homes actually. You've lost your career. What's the time they called you a boy genius? Now you can't even get a job washing dishes. You've lost your clothing somewhere between Dallas, your last stop, and here, probably in Phoenix, where they put you in jail and kicked your teeth out. You've lost uh, you've lost your ability to get any kind of a job. You're an only child, and your mother's not allowed to accept phone calls from you anymore because your stepfather's so tired of watching you manipulate her on the phone and get some more money one more time to make it right and then break her heart. He said, now you go- if you had said, you've been going to AA for 10 years now. Now why don't you just go back there, instead of being so cute, and go back there and admit you're an alcoholic and do something about it? And if I were in a mood to be honest, which I may or may not have been, because when you're desperate, the number one priority is to get out of this But if I were in a mood, to be honest, I suppose I uh, would have told him, it isn't the way it looks, pal. It isn't the way it looks. I would go back to AA if I were an alcoholic. It seems to help alcoholics. But I'm not an alcoholic. And he might have said, well, prove you're not an alcoholic. You look like one. And I would not have been able to do that. I would not have been able to stand back and, and examine myself with any sort of objectivity So I probably would have taken defense behind what frightened, weak people like me do, and that is bluster. And we take refuge behind, oh, get out of my face! Leave me alone! Shut up! Because I don't know the right answer. I know the right answer now, though, and I've known it for a long, long time. And I've seen it myself and countless others. I I know exactly why I was willing to bet my life I was not an alcoholic. For a very simple reason, I would go to AA meetings off and around, around the country when the heat was on. I'd work in different advertising agencies, different corporations around the country, and eventually the heat would get bad, and I'd go to AA for a little while until the heat diminished. And if I didn't learn much, I learned one thing. I learned what an alcoholic was, and I wasn't that. Nothing metaphysical, nothing mystical, nothing spooky. Very pragmatic. Which, of course, begs the question, well, what's an alcoholic? Everybody knows what an alcoholic is. Everybody in this room, certainly. People driving by out in uh, Jekyll Island know what it is. Alcoholics are people who seem, in every generation, there seem to be a bunch of people who don't drink very well. They can't handle it very well. They're kind of weak, really. And they, their, their lives get out of whack, and their emotions get very painful. And they eventually get driven to some place like AA. And the AA sober them up, and they clean up their act, and, and they feel better. Would you say that's true? Anybody here ever been to a speaker meeting where that wasn't? The specifics vary all over, but it's always those same facts. Well, I, I used to drink, and it was really terrible. I came to A and got sober, and now it's better. And that is the story of Alcoholics Anonymous, but an alcoholic is. And I, over the years, I suspect I had sold out my integrity so many times to get out of jams, to get through this, to get through that, it's always amazing to me the one shredded, little shred, the little tattered shred of integrity I had left was that would not allow me to say I was an alcoholic because I knew I really wasn't. And I knew I wasn't because of this. I, uh, I drink like an alcoholic sometimes. I get in trouble like an alcoholic. I've been hospitalized, I've been in veterans' hospitals in a padded cell, I've been in a committed for an indefinite period up to the rest of my life perhaps to the Texas State Insane Asylum at Big Spring, Texas as a suicide, successful suicide, revived. I've been in jail a lot. But the one thing is this. Unlike alcoholics, it is when I get sober and clean up my act, that's when my life gets painful. And that's when my emotions get out of whack. And whatever that problem is, that's not an alcohol problem. That's something wrong inside of me. And eventually, I try to stay sober for good reasons. and eventually it gets to be almost as though someone's put a spring inside of me, a big spring, and they just push it down a little bit every day, a little every day, and the tension builds and the tension builds, and I want so hard to be good for my children and to hold this job, and I don't want, I've always wanted to be a good man, always wanted to be, and one day it gets so bad I can't stand it. And one thing, I've tried. Analysis. I've tried reading. I've tried prayer. I've tried everything I know over the years. But nothing has ever relieved that like two or three drinks. And that's why I drink. I don't drink because I'm a drinker. I drink because I'm a feeler. And nobody seems to understand that. And then I drink and I feel better. And sometimes I drink too much. Then someone will nicely say, Well, you ought to go to AA. You don't seem to handle it. If you'd stop drinking, you'd be all right. And then you have to say, well, gee, thanks for the advice. But inside of you, your voice just wants to shriek, but you don't understand. My case is different somehow. I don't know why, but it is. I guess that's the universal flag that every alcoholic sooner or later carries. But my case is different. uh, I've often thought, I'd like to, if Betsy Ross, I mean, if Alcoholics Anonymous ever designs a flag, I want to be their Betsy Ross and... Something we could all gather under. It wouldn't say, I need booze or give me drinks. Could you' say, but you don't understand. We'd all gather under that and be like every other group of misfits and march on Washington, demand our rights. Except with our luck, we'd all wind up and say, here we are in Seattle, who do we talk to? <laughs> yeah. But I stood in that street corner, and nobody came up and talked to me. I just stood there. And I had this terrible feeling. I think the, the feeling is so terrible. It's, and I've seen it in others who weren't standing on a wet street corner, who were still making a million dollars a year, but that feeling seems to you well, guess you different people. And as you have a feeling, there is no friendly direction. There is no place to go back to. There is no one waiting for me anywhere. There is no friendly hand. You just, man, what am I going to do? That's the worst feeling of all. And I didn't know what to do that morning, so I uh, I knew had to get out of the rain. And a couple of weeks before that, in my drunken for, a, for a, two or three weeks, I'd been in Los Angeles. I had been and wound up and somebody dropped me off at a club, and I alienated everybody there, and I left. But I remembered vaguely it was some place called Wilshire and Fairfax, where I had no idea where that was. And I said, "How do you get to Wilshire and Fairfax?" He said, "Well." Wilshire doesn't come all the way down. You have to go up to Hill Street, cut over to Wilshire, go west. And I did that, in that rain. I walked and walked and walked and walked and walked. I went back and counted a couple of years later in my car. It was 72 long blocks. That's a long walk when you're desperate. I, uh, a woman in New York asked me one time, she said, how could you possibly walk that far when you were so desperate? Of course, the answer is quite obvious. That's the only time you can. We've all done things in desperation we could never do, not necessarily walk in the rain, but whatever it might be a desperate act. And I got to this old club, and as soon as I saw it, my heart sunk because I, I remember being a fool in there. And I went in, they weren't glad to see me, and I wasn't glad to see them. And It not only was an AA club, it was the worst type of AA club. It was full of AA fanatics. <laughs> I, uh, I know of nothing more depressing to an intelligent, non-alcoholic slipper and to be surrounded by a keep coming back, live and let live. First things first, attitude <laughs> <turn> of gratitude. <laughs> and I, but I had to get out of that rain. And I hung around there that night. They had a meeting, and I ate about four pounds of cake. And somebody talked about God for an hour. Mailman's made me vomit it up. And everybody went home. And I, my my stock had trade by this time, I had to pretend to be a newcomer because you couldn't tell anybody you've been around and still doing that bad. I said, I'm just a newcomer, and I'm looking for a new way of life, and I have no place to stay. Do you, you have some place for me to stay?" I tried to look winsome as I could. The yeah, guy said, yeah, you're in luck. He said, there's an old 90, 1949 Merck out in the parking lot. Guy left it there last summer. it's in the tall grass. Go sleep in that. That's what you want me to sleep in an abandoned car? Yeah, good deal, huh? Yeah, sure. Is. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. <laughs> And the next morning I got up, you know, Sunday morning, there was somebody else talking about God, and I ate about four pounds of cake. And uh, then I found a little room upstairs where there was, had a TV set. Hardly anybody knew, went up there, so I went up there and watched TV all day and the night. There was another meeting. I slept in an abandoned car that night. Got up the next morning, went up hustled some coffee, went upstairs and watched. This went on for days. It kept raining. And uh, I remember thinking, maybe I'm dead. Maybe I'm dead. <laughs> maybe that suicide in Texas was really successful. And... Maybe my grandmother was right. Marrying a Catholic will make you go to hell forever.
1: <laughs>
0: and I had no intention then of ever staying sober. I look back now and that was my sobriety date. Who would have ever guessed that? Of all the times I ever got sober, that was the least least dedicated time I ever had. I didn't want to stay sober. And I look back now and I, people sometimes say, well, what, what was the difference this time? In Toronto, where these Certain people are from. A few years ago, I was at a meeting up there where in the afternoon. They had a question and answer part of the program. And I, I like question and answers because I, if I don't know the answer, I weave a tapestry of BS till I think of it. You know. <laughs> this woman got up in the back. She says, Clancy, I don't want one of your long answers. <laughs> says, but just at a sentence or two, what was different this time? And I could not think of an answer. I, Notice we'd run out of time, fortunately. I could not think of an answer to that. In the short, I, mean, I could have woven a, a, a mosaic. But uh, that night I was taking a shower before the meeting. And I thought of the answer. And it was such a tedious little answer, I hated it. I, I tried to discard it because it's such a bum little answer. It's a dumb little answer. I like, I like answers that have panache. <laughs> I'd like to have people leave here tonight and say, did you hear what that man said? "Never mind if the horse is blind, keep loading the wagon."
1: Yeah.
0: Did you hear what he said at the end? "Wet birds don't fly at night." You know, none of these things mean anything, but they've got body. they've got And the answer, I thought, it was such a trivial little dumb thing. This is the first time that I got so emotionally distraught that I permitted myself to do things that I thought were stupid and I disagreed with. That isn't much of an answer. And yet that is, as far as I know, the answer to my my life. I permitted, or whether I permitted myself or not, I found myself doing stupid things that I would never have sunk to with any degree of merit left. And it turns out that's what, how AA seems to work, and it just seems so so odd, because there's nothing there to base it on. I think probably a, a good analogy, I would say that probably the main factor in my survival, and survival of merely everybody I've known, but in my survival exactly, I was the trust among AA fanatics. Now, I wouldn't call them AA fanatics tonight, I would call them AA winners. I'm sure new people always wonder why why do they have to stick with the winners? Because you hear that again, stick with the winners, stick with the winners. Who's the winners? Who knows in the meeting who the winners are? Do they wear a sign and say, I'm a winner? No. But they have what they have, in, what they have uh, I would say that maybe it's the people who've been sober the longest. Sometimes it is and sometimes it isn't. Everyone who's been sober a length of time runs across eventually someone who used to be a good AA and are now just an old, dry, sour, negative thing. I tell new people, stay away from that person because all they'll do is feed you poison. That's sad. So who are the winners? Well, as far as I know, the winners are the people who are currently sitting in those meetings on a continuing basis, who have come here feeling as bad as I ever felt or as you ever felt, because I think you can only feel so bad. The podium flash of walking in the rain and the houses it's all very nice, but what it really means is I felt as bad as I could feel, and you did too. And they've come here and allowed themselves to be take actions against their will sometimes, and be opened up to take do some dumb things that gradually change their perception of reality. Until now, they sit here feeling rather good, and they wait for other people coming in full of pain and agony, and try to teach them the same lessons. And the other converse of that, of course, is says, "Stay away from the losers. Stay away from the losers." Who are the losers? Who knows? Sometimes they're effervescent people, bubbling people, and there's no way to really tell it. But there's one little hallmark: when you hear this, you know that person is not to be listened to. Just little things like, "Oh, you don't have to do all those things. You don't have to do all that crap your sponsor's telling you. That's just that's just A.A. baloney. I don't do them when I'm sober." And that's a pretty persuasive argument when when they're asking you to do things you don't believe in. And here's somebody sober saying you don't have to. And some of them do stay sober for a while. I think of, course, I'm sure you all know this better than I don't, but that story of early in the century when three or four families, I believe it was on Long Island, suddenly came down with typhoid fever. And they could find no explanation for it. Nobody, there's no typhoid, There's the sanitation was fine, there's no way they could get typhoid fever. How could this be? And they were baffled. But upon long examination, they found one thing the families all had in common. They all had had the same cook, one time or another. A woman named Mary Delaney, I believe her right name was. And they found her, and she didn't have typhoid fever, but they tested her, and she did have typhoid fever, but it didn't make her sick. She was one of those rare people who carried it but didn't suffer from it. And she was heartbroken when she found out what had happened to her people. But she carried the death and did not die from it. That's, of course, where the term type. This is the end of side one. Please turn the tape over now and continue listening on side two. People carry death but don't die from it. Eventually, they go down. But they take an awful lot of people before that. Now, they say, why why should you... uh, why should you stay with these activists, these winners? Primarily because they're activists. When you don't have much going for you inside, I think it's safe to say, no matter how big a front you have, your own sense of disintegration inside, you have a tendency to take on the coloration of your environment. If you're amongst a bunch of people in AA who are doing things, you do them too. Not out of any great sense of love, it's just what you do. I remember, in my case, of course, I was a little different coming off Skid Row, but I've seen this happen in many other people too, on all levels of society. But I mean, standing—I remember standing in that club after two months of being sober. I'm thinking, I'm not going to go to another meeting anymore. I've had all the stories of people's successes. I'm sick. Three years ago, I wouldn't have hired some of these boobs to mow my lawn, and here I am taking crap from them and being patronized by them. What I need—I need some front teeth. And I need some clothes and get back into advertising. If I have to I'll hold up a gas station and hold up a convenience store, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna sit in these meetings and watch my life disappear. Now just be thinking that Come on, Clancy, time to get the car, go to the meeting. Mm-hmm. Didn't mean to. Come on, Clancy, we're gonna help Fred move his furniture. Oh shit. <laughs> and on and on. Finally, stayed sober a while, didn't like it, stepped out of man car. They finally said, Get a sponsor. They always said that, Get a sponsor. And I'd had sponsors over the years, a good one, a very good doctor, Dr. John Ashby in Dallas, where I was working there. And he, I had him be my sponsor because he was a child specialist, and I had a lot of children. And I, I didn't actually worry about him, I didn't want to worry him with my problems, but I told him how to kid. And I had a sponsor, the editor of the El Paso Time. I have a lot of sponsors. The trouble with sponsors is this, though. They don't want to stick their nose in your business. And most of them aren't qualified. And so I saw this guy come in to the club, and he was an actor. He he always played loving roles. He was a character actor. He played loving roles, and all his uncles, your brothers-in-law who had money and helped people. I said, Bob, would you be my sponsor? Yeah, I will, kid, but you do what I say. Oh, sure. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, I look back now he should have won the Academy Award for every loving role he ever played because they were foreign to his nature he uh he turned out to be a right wing fascist AAP is what he was Just I've looked back many times and he dictated things to me he did not share he told me I remember thinking many times boy that guy doesn't know much about AA I, uh I may be living in an abandoned car, but I know more about AA than he does. I know you're supposed to share. And I used to think, why would I take that crap from that guy? Because one of my stocks to trade, and maybe some of you too. I've always been defiant. I'm not going to be addressed like an idiot. Much of my life, adult life, was spent in defiance. I've been on good jobs, good advertising jobs, where someone might imply that I didn't know what I was talking about, or someone authority patronized me and I'd, I've quit jobs. Oh yeah? Take your job and shove it in your ear. I've been in bars. I get in fights in bars. I'm not equipped to do it very well, but some guy implies I'm weak. Come on! You think I'm weak? Come on, let's go. Now why would I get do that? And I look back and as far as, after listening to a lot of inventories and thinking about it, it seems to me it's quite obvious. I have always down deep inside of me knowing that I was weak and I can't afford to let anybody know that. So I gotta be strong all the time. And if you imply I'm weak, I gotta do something that's gonna make me you prove that I'm not. And after I was in A for a long time I began to realize when you become strong, then you can afford to be weak. But weak people can't afford to be weak. They gotta be strong. You gotta be something. Gotta be out there. And I I tend to defy his kind of thing I look back now my life and that, in those times then certainly a little bit now you know the kind of people I like I like people who like me I think they're stupid I have no respect for them but I like them I hate people who can see through me and see that I'm a phony and see that I'm weak and I hate them I begrudgingly respect him, but I hate him. And this guy could see through me. I just knew it. And I hated him, but he liked me too, and I liked him for that. I did things to get a pat on the back from that old fool I wouldn't have done for my mother or for a job or for baby Jesus. I wouldn't have done for him, but he, I don't know how many times, once in a while, he'd say, did a good job, kid. <laughs> thought so and little by little he got me taking actions that I thought were just ridiculous and stupid he got me one day I, when, I, when I was six months over, I lost my job as a dishwasher I was going to commit suicide an absolute depressed, depression I held the job two days and I couldn't hold it and he took that same pain and used it to uh, force me to write an inventory that I swore I'd never write because I've taken my inventory with a professional why do I have to take it with an out of work actor what good is that going to do that made him testy. Everything made him testy. I would say in passing, there's something that I think about somewhat so well, I'm sure some of you do too. You know, this because I've been sober a long time, a lot of years, and I've been active all this time, not out of any great love for action, but I've discovered when I don't get active, I have a tendency to become a little spooky. Not my fault. I, I'm Norwegian, you know. <laughs> I'll tell you. A couple of years ago I was talking in Norway. I went to Norway now to visit where my grandfather parents came from and it suddenly struck me one of the great reasons I'm not right in 1880s all these Norwegians left Norway and came to America to get out of that hideous climate and they all settled in North Dakota and Wisconsin and they spent the rest of their life saying yes this is cold up here too yeah. You know. Well, those kind of genetics you have a you're a deficiency going in, I'll tell you. But I, I travel a lot and I've been asked to come and speak in some exotic places of Cape Town and and Johannesburg and Berlin and Paris and London and I was over in Dublin a couple of months ago and Belfast and somewhere else in Australia and New Zealand and other places. And uh, you'd think that incidentally you'd think A would be really exotic in these places, but it's a funny thing except for the accents you hear, the same chatter you hear here. As far as I know, every group in the world is about the same. There's a group of people who have come here, have taken some actions, are finding a way to live comfortably, semi-comfortably. There's a group of people who cannot bring themselves to take those actions, who defy them, who hover on the edge, uh, ridiculing those who do. And there are new people in the middle, and both of these groups fight for their soul and uh, it's really a battle. It goes on all over but the real thing that, when you fly a lot i'm sure you know this most of you know uh, what i really enjoyed a couple years ago a few years ago going over to paris on the SST i was sponsoring a astronaut at that time and he's still sober but i mean he said i've, I've been, we talked about it at lunch today i said he and he said i i've been invited to a to a big uh, get convocation of ast- russian and american astronauts And it's a big put it on the Russian legation in Lyon, France. He said, But I'm supposed to bring a guest. He said, and my wife and I are divorced and the children are not around and I'm not close to anyone. Who could I possibly bring? I said, Hmm. (laughs) And so for his own good I went with him. (laughs) I remember riding on the SST and you know, it has this great big some of you've ridden, I'm sure, this great big dial in the front and you take off and it goes to two o'clock. You know you're making good time. They turn on, go over the ocean, and the dial starts. It goes, and it gets to back to twelve. And you're at the speed of sound. And then it keeps going, and you're way up high. The sky is black. You can see the curvature of the earth it's, oh. oh. Then when you land, you figure, I hope we got good brakes on this baby, because we're going to be in Luxembourg or something. <laughs> but well, of course, they don't use brakes on the plane anymore than than brakes. On the plane, I landed in Jacksonville last night. The plane lands; they reverse the thrust of the jets, and the plane eventually stops. That's all. All do the same thing. And I thought many times that really is the story of Alcoholics Anonymous: the same pain that makes it essential that I nullify it by drinking alcohol. The same pain—if I can allow someone to change the thrust of that pain, that same pain can be used to get me to take actions. I would never take, based on my own judgments or evaluations. But it's very, very difficult to find someone you can trust that much. We could say, oh yeah, I trust him. But when the heat's on, you can't. Uh, I, think, I don't know if it was Hal or somebody told me a few years ago, you know, this in the early days of aviation, one of the worst things that could happen to one of these beginning planes was to get into a tailspin. They could never come out of a tailspin. They had one stick, and they'd try to pull it back. They'd try to pull themselves out, and they'd crash and you have to dig your hands off the stick. And one day some guy was up at some tremendous height, maybe almost a thousand feet, and he got into a tailspin and tried to pull it out and couldn't pull it out. So he said, I might as well die. I don't want to go down slow and he pushed it forward to make it dive in the ground and that day they discovered how to get out of tailspins. You come out the other side. And that's the way they do it today. What, hard left rudder and full blast and come out the other side. But they were still taking people out of the ground because they, they knew that's how, what you did except when they got in the tailspin there wasn't a the time to try theory I'm gonna pull this baby out and in much the same manner it is the same way the emotions in my life I know God I've been around today and I've worked with people I've been everywhere and done everything can't remember much of it but I've been there and I know the answers until I get into a tailspin then I have to, it's very difficult not so much now but it was for a long time to remember what to do and I, I, want to pull back on that thing. And a lot of times, a few times, especially my early sobriety, there's just a last second. Okay, <clears throat> I've had a grass stains on the top of my head a couple times. wow. Was... But that's—it's so easy to talk about philosophy and actions to take when things are all right. But when the things are bad, my perceptions get distorted, and the pressures on, and the, the claustrophobia of the mind comes in. But little by little, I uh, I took these actions. And little by little, my my perceptions changed. And now, as I said, it's been something over 40 years. That's the only therapy I've had. Uh, and I... It's so simple to me now. And yet, in my work today... I mean, I stayed in my work and when I was about 25 years, or 15 years sober. I was a marketing director in a, a firm in Beverly Hills. And the guy asked me if I could help him find somebody to... Uh, run this mission briefly until they found a permanent director and I said, I'll do it for, I'll take a leave of absence and do it for a few weeks. Because it was a midnight mission, the same place that threw me out. I thought, well, I'll go back and find that guy, <laughs> thank him, and leave. And I got caught up and I've been there now 25 years. In fact, a couple months ago, they had a big thing in the downtown of the Hotel Biltmore and uh, Dick Van Dyke came down was the <laughs> master's ceremonies and the mayor was there and the, chief of police and, and I really felt a little sheepish that they uh, are giving me such a wonderful thing for doing something that just kept me out of my own mind for a while. But all of these all of the experiences of my life I mean we all go different directions but predicated on taking certain actions that in moments of crisis seem erroneous. That's a very very hard thing and that's why I think for people like me we have to continue to gather together to reinforce not to gain information, I haven't heard anything new in an AA meeting in 30 years. But to reinforce what I already know, to reinforce things I have to do. I remember a few years ago I was thinking about an analogy, about, you know, why do, why do with all the new modern techniques and treatment facilities now that help people, why are there people still getting drunk? Why come out of treatment centers is almost, in some cases, it's, it's like a kiss of death for them. How could that be? And yet, other people come out of treatment centers, and they're doing well, and they I could not imagine... Because I, I got sober in an era when there weren't any treatment centers or treatment facilities. And as the years went by, these old-timers would lead us to say, Ah, you don't go to a treatment center, a bunch of wimps and wussies. You dirt the steps, and you got to be And uh, I felt that way for a while, too, Then I came to understand there were some tr- certain treatment facilities turning out great AA's, and some of them were turning out dead men. And I... The analogy I thought about that was this: you can't really blame people for going to treatment facility. I mean, it's like going down to the beach in Santa Monica, and I want to go to Santa, to Catalina Island. It's just out of, it's beyond the horizon. And here's a guy in a little white skiff, and smells of food coming out of the galley, and trained little men in their white jackets saying, "Won't you come with us in the SS treatment center?" Okay, maybe I will let me see what they have down here you walk down here and here are two rather strange looking guys say you want to come with us we're from AA we've got an invisible boat (laughs) thanks a lot (laughs) anybody's got any brains we get in the SS treatment center and they do exactly what they say they dry you off they feed you they clothe you they give you information you never had before and it's wonderful the only drawback is this. they just get out of sight of land, and they say, "Well, we've got to go back now and get another load." But I'm not in Santa Catalina Island. Well, you swim like a son of a bitch, <laughs> and so you do it, and you swim and it's about drowning. <laughs> help! Help! Here comes these two boobs by in their invisible boat. Want to ride? I'm not that sick. <laughs> and pretty soon you're almost drowned again. Here they come again. Want to ride? Yes, I do. <laughs> and they lift you up. And as you dry off, you realize there's no boat here. It's invisible. What do you want me to do, you pies? Grab a row. I'm grabbing an oar and start to row. <laughs> oh, you're crazy. Swim until you almost drowned again. They come by again. Want to ride?
1: Yes. What do you want me to do?
0: Grab an oar and row. Oh, for Christ's sake. And you row an invisible boat with an invisible oar and you feel stupid. (laughs) And as you row, the boat gradually appears. And little by little it grows. And that's what it's about. Rowing an invisible oar in an invisible boat. till the boat appears, it gets larger, much larger than that little skiff over there. That's what sponsors are for. They come by and say, hey, you got your oar upside down today. Oh, yes, I have. And uh, you keep rowing. And eventually you don't want to go to Catalina. I just want to stay here in the boat. Now, what's that got to do with the good and bad treatment centers? Good treatment centers take you out and they say, now, we're going to have to let you out here. But when you see these two boobs of the boat jump in and roll like hell, Why? Never mind why. Just do it. (laughs) And bad treatment centers say, you can make it from here, baby. You can make it from here. And uh, it's a hard thing to remember that these actions are, these involvements, and yet we all know what they are. I often, you know, one of the great questions that new people ask sometimes, I have asked it, they say, uh, well, AA is nice, but, you know, I'm cursed with the ability to think, unlike many of your members. I just can't take things as some sort of divine revelation. But how does it work? How does it work? And then they, these, (laughs) these people can smugly say, "How did it work? Here's how it works." Rarely have we seen a person fail who has told you. And the questioner says, "Oh Jesus, I'm sorry, I asked you." they really don't mean how does it work they mean why does it work and that's the question that comes through most people's minds once in a while why does it work and I uh, the example I think about that and it's certainly appropriate to you guys because you know much more about it than I do I don't know if you've thought about this context but thinking about it in the 1700s when smallpox was such a dreadful dreadful epidemic disease and you know the Remember reading a book once about Philadelphia called Bring Out Your Dead talking about the wagons coming through town and people bring out your mother, bring out your dead children, throw them on the wagon. Just and have no knowledge of bacteria or germs or microbes or anything else. Just is it because of the stage of the moon? Is it because there's a lot of stray dogs here? What what is it? It's just a terrible epidemics. And this fellow whom most of you I'm sure all know of Dr. Edward Jenner noticed the strange fact. Girls who milk cows did not get smallpox. Now why in the hell would that be? Dirty old cows? What did that have to do with it? Then he talked to them and he discovered some of them did get cowpox. Did get uh, smallpox. But the ones that didn't had all had cowpox. And this was a kind of a mild illness comparatively. But what could that possibly have to do with this lethal smallpox? But he made the empirical evaluation that there's got to be a connection so he bought a little boy named Jimmy Phipps and he took him over where the people had cowpox and he had no idea how disease spread but he assumed he cut a little slit in his arm and took some pus off a girl with cowpox and rubbed it in his arm and Jimmy Phipps got sick and got better and then after he got better he took him over to the pest house where they're dying of smallpox and he put a little slit in his arm. He didn't use his hand on this one, he used a stick or something and took some pots off and rubbed it in his arm. And uh, Jimmy Phipps got sick and got better. And for the first time, they found there's a way to stop po- or smallpox, you give people cowpox, but a lot of people wouldn't accept that. Well, okay, that's just superstition, but that's how they began. And all of you know this. You know, the word for cow in, in Latin is vacus. That's where the term vaccination comes from, injection of the cow. And for 150 years it worked amongst those that were willing to do it, but nobody ever knew why. Then they eventually they found out that somehow cowpox sets up, to, sets up antibodies against smallpox and prevents it from taking up all the stuff that goes with it. And then they knew why. But thousands and thousands and thousands of people had stayed alive without knowing why. And I sometimes get that feeling in Alcoholics Anonymous. Nobody knows why. Maybe someday in some laboratory, some crazed scientist will finally say, I've got it. I now see it all. I have empirical proof. A series of apparently non applicable actions. Taken under the direction of a crazed tyrannical figure and surrounded nightly by neurotic misfits, (laughs) sets up a flood of endorphins to the hypothalamus that makes it unnecessary to drink again. (laughs) Then perhaps we'll know why. But none of us here will be around to see it. You know, maybe a hundred years from now. So we have to take the position of those poor boobs in London. I don't see how how why it can work, but all I can say it does work, and so I will do it despite knowing why, because it's surrounded by those who do it have a successful pattern, and it's very very important for people like me. And I presume, like you know, you think well, we as doctors would know that. Not true. You know that. and I know that. You know, that's one of the great reasons. I think that AA warns so strongly against special interest AA. Not that you shouldn't go to American doctors and uh, and alcoholic doctors ADA or international lawyers in AA or whatever the hell it might be, or the birds of a feather held after help. But that's fine to go there. I think it's great. But eventually, you have to go out into the population where you are one alcoholic among many. Because the great drawback, it seems to me, I remember a few years ago, one of the great examples of this, There's the reason I think so, but it's a great example. I was about two years sober, hanging around the A-Club, and I was working, saving money towards front teeth so I could make my move. And uh, there was a famous movie star, had a, had a meeting, well-known, written up in the 1960 International Convention, book, uh, famous movie star, and it was all movie stars, nearly all movie stars, in his garage. He had a garage like the Taj Mahal, and they gathered there every Tuesday night. And he had to have an invitation to go. And you might take me out of Wisconsin, but you can't take Wisconsin out of me. And I wanted desperately to go. I sucked around people that I just hated and detested. Hi, how are you today? <laughs> Can I get you a cup of coffee? <laughs> I finally got the invitation. I was so I was sick with pleasure. They brought me up to this garage on this night, and that's just what they said. The guy sitting next to me was a famous movie star, and just around the room, some producers, a couple directors, mostly movie stars, they'd been meeting up here for six or seven years and they were very famous. And they went around the room and talked, and I just, oh, I saw you, and, and I saw you, and, and you were in Laura, and you were in oh. Now, on the way home, it suddenly struck me. I only had two years of sobriety, but I had the most sobriety in the room because they all understood each other's slips because it's so difficult to be an actor and stay sober. And they reinforced their feelings of difference. I'm sure they did that. And I think that's the great problem with special interest alcoholics, anonymous approaches, because you could, without even being aware, but get into a situation where you're just reinforcing your difference. Yes. I can't stay sober because I'm a doctor. I understand that because I'm a doctor and I can't stay sober. And our case is different. We can't be public. I'm a pilot. I, I can't stay sober, but I, I have a lot of pressure. Me too. I you know. And you have to be around people who say, yes, I have pressures too, dummy. But you can stay sober by taking certain actions, not by understanding, not by knowledge, not by anything. Because knowledge doesn't do anything for you. I remember again when I was new, I saw a guy who wrote one of the basic textbooks of Alcoholics Anonymous Counseling. Still is used, I guess. And this was 40 years ago. And I watched him come to meetings at Brentwood and always coming off a drunk. Because he knew so much about alcoholism he couldn't do those tedious little things that they wanted him to do. And he finally died drunk. I've seen all kinds of people die drunk who deserve better. But they took refuge behind that fact that my case is different. And we all know that feeling. And we will have it again. That's why they, you know, because my My intellect is one thing, my emotions are something else. I think it's safe to say that, and I'm not an authority, I know there are psychiatrists in this room, and I may be wrong on this, but I don't think so, that when intense neurotic emotions are in conflict with the power of the intellect, unless something happens, the emotions will eventually always win. The intellect goes, gets tired, goes, take a walk. And so people like me, people like me spend my life trying to strengthen my intellect, reading, understanding, learning. But if the intent emotions are strong enough, nothing is ever enough. The power of the intellectual will, or as is known in our book, willpower, the power of willpower to contain intense emotions. So what you go to AA and you okay, I read the book, I read the damn pamphlets, and it still is not enough. And it turns out that isn't what does it. It turns out these dumb actions, these amends, these involvements, these being of service to others, this trying to help people, does not strengthen your intellect at all. It d- releases the pressure of the emotions. So you bring about the same thing on the other side. It diminishes the intensity of the emotions that so enables me most of the time to control my emotions with my power of my will. And that's why they say, of course, dumb things, don't get too hungry. Don't get too angry, don't get lonely, don't get tired. Sounds <laughs> like your grandmother's sending you off to school. But those are very good reasons because all of these things are perception distorters. Nothing changes, just my perception changes. When you're hungry, you'll notice that you become impatient and other people become stupid. Don't know why. Come on, do that. <laughs> when I'm angry, it's always justified and God wants me to kill him.
1: <laughs>
0: I usually dissuade him, but I... When I'm lonely, it brings out every neurotic tendency in my... I guess they're all somewhere doing something, but... Oh, I'm all right. I'll, I'll have a late movie to watch. When I'm tired, I don't know why it is, but people know I'm tired, and I can pretend I'm not come back from talking in Palm Springs or something and drive 150 miles home again and get up in the morning and get that Santa Monica freeway to go to work. And I've learned to not look tired. I hum little songs. <laughs> but some old lady up around La Siena, See the boy in the blue Buick Riviera? He's exhausted. I'm going to cut that son of a bitch off. <laughs> I don't know how they know that. But AA has over the years taught me some great lessons. But one, you, you can't chase people past your exit. You know. And when you do catch them, unfortunately you can't do anything. You're not allowed to cut them off and put on your brakes anymore. You have to. You can give them, Stop by and give them a ray. A few years ago, I was coming off the Santa Monica Freeway to the Harbor Freeway, and a, a little girl in a car almost put me into the cement wall. Or I, I came this close to dying. I made an exception in her case. I, I went past my exit because I thought I owed it to her. And we were on the Pasadena Freeway, and I got next to her, and I, I gave her a quadruple ray. Then I know she's only about 17 years old, blonde, long, blonde hair, and just a fresh little face. I thought, just the age of my granddaughter, Katie Doherty, what kind of an old freak have I become to punish people? She's doing the best she can. What the hell is wrong with me? So I smiled at her and she went.. <laughs> She's lucky I had a program.
1: <laughs>
0: but that's, I guess, what it boils down to. What does Alcoholics Anonymous do for me? It doesn't change any facts. It changes my perception of them. That's all. I, uh, it, and that's what I continue doing it because when I stop doing it for a while, I, I stay all right, but everybody else goes to hell just little by little. And then for your sake, I go back to meetings and bring you back up. But that's what it is is about. It isn't to make you wonderful or holy. I came to uh, believe in a God that I had given up on when I was 12 years old because a Norwegian Lutheran God does not permit people to come back when they've sinned. Oh, there he is now. Whap! And I find myself going home years later, taking my mother to church and thinking, isn't that funny? The same God is in this room. It's in my meeting in West L.A. And most of the people here will never know this because they think God is trying to get them. And somehow in AA, by taking some steps and making amends and things, I've learned that God loves me, and if I can get out of the way, some good things will happen for me. But usually I'll get in the way and spoil it. I've learned to view my family with some... One time I thought I was an absolute victim, but through AA, I've come to realize I was not a victim. I was a victim of my own selfishness, my own introspection. And all these things are very nice. Today Hal was talking about an attitude of gratitude, and I have gratitude intermittently and sometimes strongly. But it's not something you can just say, I think I'll be grateful. It seems to me you have to change your actions. You must do things that bring about a sense of self-worth that enables that jury there to say, it's okay for you to feel comfortable. My enemies are not out there. My enemy is in here if I let it go. There's a sleeping tiger and I want to keep it sleeping as long as I can. And if I don't, it'll get so bad I'll eventually have to drink. Because it turns out, drinking wasn't my problem at all. Drinking was my escape from my problem. And I get an unnatural reaction to alcohol, it turns out. I'm one of those people who get an unnatural reaction. That unnatural reaction is, it makes it all right. But eventually atrophies my ability to cope with reality. And one day I can't drink and I can't stay sober. And I know my problem is not alcohol. And I'm willing to die rather than admit I'm an alcoholic. Because damn it, my problems are real. And it takes a lot of despair, and surrender to finally last loud enough to discover you do have an alcohol problem, but it is subservient to your sobriety problem. What makes alcoholism a fatal disease is not that you can't get sober, but that eventually sobriety becomes worse than the memory of drinking. And that's what it's all about here, to do things, to help one another, to help take actions, to reinforce one another's moments of disbelief and fear and despair. We all will have days of weakness and despair. It would be nice if we all marched out of high to the scales down to the end of the trail. But There are days when as the, our church used to say, when you're weak and heavy laden and you need some place to go. And thank God we've got a place to go. So I'm in kind of a strange situation. I uh, I very nearly, I died once as a suicide and very nearly died again. Rather than prove I was, then st- st- couldn't conceive I might be an alcoholic, and now after 40 years, I can't conceive sometimes why people will not admit they're an alcoholic, because of how quickly my perceptions change. But over the next few days, you will hear all sorts of aspects of alcoholism, and you'll hear spiritual approaches to alcoholism, which certainly is the answer, and you'll hear all sorts of things, and you'll go home wise and intelligent and brighter than you came. But that still will not relieve the fact that you will have to take the actions when you leave here. This is not the race. This is the pit stop. The race is out there. And that's why we have to continue to reinforce one another. I'm going to close by saying, when I was in the Texas Insane Asylum, it's pretty bad when those people think you're insane. I, uh, I was in the electric shock ward for some time, and then I was moved to a senile ward. And they did something there that I was amazed at. They they put in the first experimental alcoholic ward in the state of Texas in the Big Spring Hospital while I was there. And by then, I'd cleared up enough to realize, oh, they're AAs. I've always been able to hustle AAs. You just look like a newcomer. I got the director one day going through, and I said, Mr. Ross, I'm here on a suicide commitment, but you know, my problem really isn't suicide. My problem is that damn alcohol. He says, no, oh, I can't leave it alone. I, I've lost my life, myself, myself worth. Do you have some kind of literature I could read or are there any sort of meetings you have over there that I could go to? <laughs> and his eyes went, <clears throat> poor old man had never seen a sincere newcomer. <laughs> and he said, I'll get back to you, boy. And I thought, "All i I didn't hear from him about four or five days I thought that old fool burned me off. But it turned out he had to go through Austin Make arrangements because it's an entirely different program than the psychiatric hospital. And I became the pilot study in the state of Texas whether or not you should, psychiatric patients should be allowed to go to the alcoholic ward. And I sat in that ward and it was, uh, I was the best patient they ever had because I wasn't burdened with any sincerity or anything. (laughs) I knew what they wanted, the rest of these guys didn't. They were there on 30 day commitments from their families, you know, they just couldn't stand it. What are you doing? What are you going to do to get out of here, Fred? I'm going to kill that bitch. And I finally I became rather a good uh, I became secretary of the group eventually. eventually got out of there. But I was thinking, the first day I went over there, they brought me over there. I'd been to AA meetings off for six, seven years by that time. And I went over there and said, "'re going to have an AA, and I was just off Shock but it's not very long. I wasn't really thinking carefully. said, "We're going to have an AA meeting today." And old Les Ross somebody said, "My name is Les, and I'm an alcoholic, and through the grace of God and the power of this simple program, it has not been necessary for me to drink any alcohol or take any mind sedating or tranquilizing medications since March the fifteenth, nineteen fifty-one, and for this I'm terribly grateful. Then the all said, "Hi, Les. You know, I often thought, Jesus, if I were in a position to be strengthened, I, I wouldn't go through some sick recitation like that. At least, if I we're going to give a song and dance, I tell them the truth. Not such crap as that." and years I mean in California we get to say my name is Clancy I mean I'll they say hi Clancy this is some long harangue that just makes you crazy and I I'm thinking today you know I want to tell you the truth I've come here at tremendous expense and no little inconvenience
1: I'll
0: be back to work tomorrow noon and you folks will be sitting around the pool oh I don't care uh, I'm I'm in my 70s I've had my life I've come here to tell you the absolute truth. I want to tell you what that old Les should have yeah, I thought to myself. When I get to the position, I'll tell people the truth, and I'm going to tell you the truth right now. Here's what I've learned today. My name is Clancy Immersland and I'm an alcoholic. I was glad to learn that. And then I learned, through the grace of God and the power of this simple program, has not been necessary for me to drink any alcohol or take any mind-sedating tranquilizers since October the 31st, 1958. And for this, I'm very grateful. Thank you.